0: Good morning, Integrity Church. Thanks so much for joining us online this morning. We are super excited about this Sunday because it's the last week of our series in the Psalms, Realities of the Heart, and we really look forward to uh, joining next Sunday in our building on July 19th, both at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. services. We'll have socially distanced precautions in place, so make sure you follow us online and you register online for our services so we can make sure you have a secure spot, and uh, we'll have details on our website. So be checking our website this week and our social media this week uh, to be involved in those details so you know what to expect on July 19th. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into what God has for us as we close out this series in Psalm 22. Let's pray. Father, We are so thankful that we can gather as we have scattered throughout the city, but we can gather in homes uh, this week and open your word. I pray this would just be uh, a time where we learn and we grow together. We encourage each other that we can really glean from your word and that your word would shape us and to make us more like you. I pray, Lord, that your word today would just give us hope. Hope in the season and hope uh, in the seasons to come that we would look forward to a day that we see you. But in the here and now, Lord, I pray that we would honor you and glorify you with our lives as we uh, seek uh, and desire to mature and multiply believers to leave a gospel legacy. And Lord, we thank you, and we praise you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 22 is where we'll be this morning. So throughout the series, we've seen a variety of emotions. We've seen grief. We've seen anger, fear, anxiety, uh, just to name a few. And we said at the very beginning of the series at uh, we have emotions because we're made in the image of God. Uh, God is a spiritual, we, we are spiritual beings like God is a spiritual being. And because of that, we have a great capacity uh, to love. We have a great capacity uh, to uh, have compassion for other things more than uh, any other living creature. And like God, we feel compassion. We feel anger. We feel happiness. We feel sadness. And and that's because we're human beings. And we feel more than any other creature, again, because we're made in His image. And so if this is the case that we're made in the image of God, if if this is who we really are, shouldn't we, if we're believers in Christ, uh, have uh, the healthiest balance of emotions more than anyone else? Uh, Shouldn't that be the case? And for me, I, I want to be around people who are not locked up emotionally. I, I want to be around people who can experience laughter to the point of tears or who have wept profoundly over losses and hurts in their own lives. And so my hope is that you, in recent memory, have experienced both of those things. And in recent memory, that you've laughed profoundly to the point of tears, that you've wept over sadness in your life. And perhaps if you haven't, maybe there are some areas of your, of your heart that are locked up emotionally. And so I, I hope that we, as believers in Christ, can experience the, the full gamut of emotions in a healthy way. Uh, emotions, I believe, are not talked about enough in Christian circles. And, and, and some of this is because we've seen pastors or Christian movements use them to manipulate, control, or, or to hurt people. Perhaps we've witnessed uh, people who claim to be Christians and use Bible verses to to make emotional but poor or unwise or harmful decisions. But this doesn't necessarily mean that emotions are bad, that we should minimize them or that we should ignore them. Rather, it means that we need to have a healthy, biblical, godly view of emotions. So what I want us to see is the way uh, that the the Christian worldview provides rather the best way to handle emotions. And this is the key to understanding this is really this idea that we see all throughout the scriptures, and it's it's the idea of hope. Hope is the key difference in how a believer in Christ sees the world versus the non-believer. And it's all because of what hope does. Uh, Biblical hope is is really poorly served when we read the Bible, when we read it in our English translation because the English word for the word hope it, it's really more of a posture of uncertainty. but biblical hope, the way that the Bible describes hope, is really about a certain future. It's a secure future that we can place all of our trust in, in other words, for the believer in Christ. it's not our current circumstances that dictate how we live. It's our believed in future that completely determines how we process and respond to the circumstances now. And because of this, we can have a new outlook of emotions. We can have a new view of the realities of our own heart. And this is what we're going to see in Psalm 22 this morning. In this psalm, we're going to see a vast contrast of the worst kind of hopelessness to uncertainty, to a complete, secure, confident hope. And we're going to see a a whole gamut of emotions, but there's an outcome that the psalmist comes to that allows us to not live in despair. And before we read this, notice the inscription, the very beginning of Psalm 22. If you notice the very first part before verse one, it says, "To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David." Now, this phrase, uh, "the Doe of a, of the Dawn," it is a phrase that is used to show the popularity of this particular psalm. It's sort of like David is saying this is one of his greatest hits, so to speak. It's a psalm that describes various incidents of his own suffering and uh, persecution. And and then then you see this strong connection, if you even read this psalm, of uh, the psalmist tying in words that the prophet Jeremiah uses. You'll see this correlation of Psalm 22 and all throughout the prophet Jeremiah's writings, you'll see the same words that are used. Uh, furthermore, this psalm is used multiple times throughout the New Testament. It's perhaps one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted 13 times in the New Testament. Nine times out of the 13 is quoted by Jesus while he's on the cross. And this is why this psalm is, is sometimes referred to as the, the fifth gospel because of its implicit um, or explicit uh applications to the death of Christ. You see, even in the 4th and and 5th century, North African churches would sing Psalm 22 as as they celebrated Easter together. You see, even uh, as a result of the Protestant Reformation, the the Scottish churches during communion would would sing and, and quote this psalm it's it's a popular it was popular during David's time it's even popular throughout church history and i believe that it provide it's because it provides a future hope and this future hope was something that David as he's writing this psalm as he's writing one of his greatest hits he most likely didn't realize all that it would entail that it would really talk about a future hope that's in Christ and so that's what we're going to see in psalm 22. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We already see the familiarity there of Jesus' death in verse 1. He says, Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by the mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts and the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You make, made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast for my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls from Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I'm poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me A company of my evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, and the power of the dog. Save me. From the mouth of the lion, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I'll tell of you, your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You, who fear the Lord, praise him, and your offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in all of him, all of you, offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him but he has heard when he, when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingsmen belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who should keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, That he has done it. Obviously, we can't explain every verse here, right? It's a lot of reading there, all 31 verses. But I want you to see there are two parts to this really important psalm. The first 21 verses is David's despair. And then you see the latter verses, starting in verse 22, David's hope. So I want to unpack David's despair first, and then we're going to look at David's hope. You see in verses one and two, these famous words that David is crying out to the Lord. It's actually what Jesus proclaims on the cross. He says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt this way? This is David saying this. I, mean, I want you to think about David saying this to the Lord. He was chosen out of his brothers to be uh, a king, he was a shepherd boy to a king. He was the most beloved of all the kings of Israel. He was talented. He was gifted. He was creative. He was compassionate. He was strong. God even calls him a man after his own heart. Yet, David feels forsaken by the Lord. He feels as if God does not even hear him. Maybe you feel like that. You prayed for pain to go away, and it seems like God is not listening. You prayed for a job. You prayed for a spouse. You prayed for a child. You prayed for sickness to be relieved. You prayed for sadness and depression to cease, and you've been met with silence. And you asked, does anyone care? Does God care? Friends, David is a man after God's own heart, and he felt that. He felt that God wasn't listening, that God wasn't near. So if you feel that way, the Scriptures would say you are not alone. The Scriptures would say it's a normal place to feel that way in seasons of our life. And not only that, David felt this even more so from from even other people. You look at verses 6 and 7. He says, But I am a worm, not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Have you ever had someone say something like that to you that was that scarring? Perhaps it came from abuse in your past, or maybe you were bullied in your upbringing. Maybe you've been slandered against. Maybe you, maybe someone has falsely accused you of something that you didn't do, or maybe it is something that you did, and it's these words that you continue to believe about yourself. All of us have self-limiting beliefs, and and Satan loves to use those things to tear us down, or to tempt us to to lose hope, or maybe to tempt us into more despair. Uh, Even me as a, as a young kid growing up, I, I had struggled through school, and I was taken to different counselors and child and family therapists. And I had a counselor tell me that I had a severe learning disability, and I, I probably wasn't going to make it to college. And so throughout middle school, I, I sort of gave up. I, there was this famous test that you took in, like, elementary school, and I think middle school as well. In my day, it was called the California Achievement Test. I think maybe they still have it. I'm not sure. CAT test and it had multiple choice, and so you'd have, you know, just like a normal, like a SAT test, you'd have, uh, you know, the questions that were asked, and then you had on the other side your multiple choice, and so I, because I'd given up, I just did zigzags. I would just do A, B, C, D, and then D, C, B, A, all the way down, because it just didn't think it mattered. What difference did it make? If I wasn't smart, I wasn't going to amount to anything, I didn't have anything to offer the world, what difference did it make? And so th- these are some of the self-limiting things, I believe. I, David's the same. He's like, I'm, I'm a man. I'm, he says, now I'm a worm. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. This is what people are saying about me, so it's got to be true, right? So this is the sort of the posture I had, and even today, I, I still struggle with that belief, thinking, man, am I, am I really, maybe, maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe I'm not that bright, and so I can empathize with David here that people, when they see me, they're wagging their head, right? They're, they're looking down on me. They think, look at that and this is something I know not to be true about me, but it's something that I wrestle with from time to time. We all have some self-limiting beliefs. David was the most loved king in all of Israel's history, yet he believes that he's a worm, that he's trash, that everyone around him, when they see him, they wag their head. They can't believe it. They say, this is the fool that what has been put in place to lead us this is the way that David feels, and sadly, this is the reality for so many of us, and that we would believe the lies that others have told us or we believe the lies that we even have told ourselves and we live in these lives so much so that we actually believe that this has to be true and this also has to be true that God sees us this way as well. How sad would that be, friends, that if we lived in our self-limiting beliefs, that we never confess those things. God says, no, David, you're not a worm. You're a man after my own heart. Friends, when you feel these beliefs begin to surface and to creep up, we should do as David does and say them out loud. This is the way I feel about myself. This is how foolish I feel. This is how dumb I feel. This is how inadequate I feel. This is how dirty or shameful or sinful I feel. And when we can share those things, we can get, receive comfort and encouragement from others. This is, this is part of my story, to, to, to deal with my own self-limiting beliefs when I have to confess those things to others. Maybe if you come to our church, you've heard me share even my own struggle in the past of, of learning and how to, how, to, how to get encouragement in that way. And I've received so much, not to fish for compliments, but to, to offset those self-limiting beliefs. This is why we need community. This is why we need others. But not only that, this is why we need hope. This is why we need hope in the Lord. I want you to see the contrast. David sees himself as a worm. He sees himself when people look at him. They're wagging their heads. They mock him. But what does God say about him? You're mine. You're a man after my own heart. So you have to have the truth to offset the lies. But even with our friends, those are just permanent places of confidence that we have. But in the Lord, in the hope in the Lord, God can bring us out of this despair. God can bring us out of these self-limiting beliefs that we say about ourselves that Satan loves to use to tear us down. David continues to be in this hopeless situation. If you look at verses 21 12 through 21, he says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted with my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot charade, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Here David uses some really interesting imagery about his enemies. He talks about the bulls of Bashan, and Bashan's really this area right outside of the Sea of Galilee where they would basically farm these incredible animals that were pure and really known for their like how big they were and massive and powerful they were. And so he's describing these enemies as that. He's like, I have these enemies that are terrifying and are they are elite, they stand out, and he's afraid. Then he describes dogs. And it's interesting that he's using both contrasts. The dogs are really there to say, they're not pets, right? He's saying, This is, these are pesky enemies that are always on my heels. In those days, Dogs weren't seen as pets, they were seen as really a a nuisance, or really, if you were going to insult someone in those days, you would call them a dog, because dogs were sort of scavengers in those days, it was like saying someone's like a a vulture or a possum, he's saying, this is, these are the dogs, they're just coming in my yard, they're tearing, they're They're tearing my yard up. They're they're aggravating me. And so he's he sees enemies in all sorts of shapes and forms. He's got these ones that he's really terrified of. He's got ones that are just pesky and all surrounding him. And so he seems really overwhelmed. He's saying my heart is is poured out like water. Uh, His heart is fragile. It's he says it's like um, melted wax. His his strength is is dried up. He's thirsty. And you see him begging that the Lord would come quickly to his aid. So this is David's despair. He says, Lord, you have left me. Lord, no one likes me. I'm just a worm. My enemies surround me. I've got no one. So he's asking, Lord, would you come quick? Would you come quickly? Now as we read through the first 21 verses, you can see David's despair in these things. But even in this despair, he sees God in the midst. It's, it's almost as if David has like a personality disorder, right? He's like, I'm in despair, but I know you're like this. I'm in despair, but I know you're like this. This is this is the hardest thing I've ever face. I can't see any, but I know you're like this. So he's going back and forth. Like for instance, if you see verses one and two, he says, you've forsaken me, where are you? But then in verses three and four, he says, but I know you're holy and you've proven to rescue people. Then you go down to verses six and seven. He says, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm mocked. And then you look at verses eight and ten. Eight through ten, he says, but I trust you, God, and you took me from the womb and you made made me trust you, my mother's breasts that you, you fed me and that, you, that you've been my God since these days. And then you look in verses 12 through 18. He says, my enemies are too much. I can't eat. I can't drink. Uh, I'm empty. My heart is soft. I have got nothing to give. And then you go down to verses 19 to 21. He says, God, don't be far off. Come quickly. Deliver me. Save me. Rescue me. So it's all these different spectrums of emotion. Now why then does the Lord do this to us? Right? Why would the Lord have David, who believes these things about God, have this full gamut of emotions? God, you don't like me. People don't like me. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. Why would the Lord bring David to this point? It's clear that David doesn't have a theological problem. He knows That who the Lord is, he knows that God is rescued. He knows that God is going to protect him. He believes that theologically. But why is he in this point where his emotions are so fragile that he feels like his heart is melting away? Why does the Lord do this to us? Why did the Lord do this to David? The Lord says it himself or rather David says it himself in Psalm 145, verse 18. He says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. One of the most profound seasons in my life was with the Lord um, was when I was doing student ministry in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, and I lived in an an impoverished area that where most of my students uh, lived in the same area where I served, and I was away from all my friends, everyone that I knew. I moved there by myself, lived in this apartment, and if you've ever been to Roanoke Rapids, there's really nothing to do, especially, I was 22 years old, there's really nothing to do for a 22-year-old in Roanoke Rapids, and so for the first time in my life, I I felt completely alone. I had great community back home, I had great relationships, and then I moved away, and I was completely alone. And that same summer when I moved there, my car actually broke down, and I was getting my car fixed, trying to get a new car. So I, I borrowed a bike, and I rode my bike everywhere I went. And so I was really limited to where I could travel, so I couldn't go see my friends. They'd have to come see me, or I was just going to be alone on the weekends. And so I would, I'd be alone this whole weekend, riding my bike everywhere I would go. And I lived at this point near an old uh, railroad track, and if you, you could follow the tracks into the woods, and, and there were these uh, really cool nature trails. And almost every day, I would walk on these trails. And what I began to do was walk on these trails, and I found this old um, train trestle where I would just sit on. I'd bring my Bible, and in those days, because I was alone, I would just start to journal. I would just start to write. I'd write messages about how I felt. I'd write messages even to the Lord, and sometimes I would even talk out loud to the Lord. And I would speak sometimes anger to the Lord, sometimes joy to the Lord. I would sometimes just sit there and read the Word and rejoice in what I was reading. Sometimes I'd read the Word. And cry for the losses that I felt or the loss over the sin even in my own life. And sometimes I would sit there and it was as if God was there with me, sitting there with me. And I mean nothing spooky or charismatic or mystical about that at all. It's really just a practical lesson that you see throughout the scriptures that the Lord calls us to be still and know that He is God. And that moment in my life was I felt nearer to God than any other moment in my life. Why? Because finally things were stripped away from me that I found so much comfort in. This is what is happening to David. David, who received incredible favor from the Lord, even at birth, he even acknowledged that. I've been your God since birth. I've been with you since birth. As a boy, he knew he was singled out as someone who was great. This is a man, a young boy, really, who killed a, a lion, who killed a bear, who killed a giant Philistine. This is a man who had incredible talents and gifts that everyone looked to. This was a man that we would look at and think as physically, attractive and wise and smart and brilliant, and powerful. But what does God do? He strips away all of those benefits, all of that comfort. And then what is David left with? He's left crying out to the Lord. And you know what? That's a really, really good thing. Because he brings them to a place where this one word is birthed out of, and that word is hope. Because once everything is stripped away, then you can have hope. Then you can say, I have to look forward to something else. Hope really means that we desire our current situation to be different. And it's really believing. Biblical hope is believing that there is certainly a better day ahead. Hope is we want something to change, right? So if we hope for a new car, it means our current car is probably going to die soon, right? Or else we're just vain. We just need new cars, right? If we hope for a job, it's because we don't have a job or we want a better job. If we hope To be married, hopefully that means that you are not currently married, right? If you are currently married, you hope to be married. There's a whole other set of problems, but that means you are not married. It means you're, you're single and you want to be married. It's hoping for something to change. You want your current situation to be different. In some ways, hope means that you're really not content with the way things are. Otherwise, you wouldn't need hope. So in theory, with believers in Christ, we sort of live with this godly discontentment. I know we, biblically we should be content but content in the Lord, but now in this, when it comes to the things of this world, we should live with this sense of discontentment. That's where hope is birthed. Hope is birthed out of discontentment. I'm not satisfied with the way things are going, so I'm going to cry out to the Lord who can give me the things that I really need. Now, of course, when we think about comfort and we think about contentment, this is what our world lives for. Our culture, we live for contentment. If if my food is not served this way, I'm not content, right? If my coffee is not this temperature, I'm not content. If we don't have NFL this season, I'm not content. You know, I'll be content when I have these things. If I get this job, if I get this house, if I get this girl, I have contentment. I'll finally be content. But let me just say something that I think is probably going to sting a little. Perhaps the worst thing that could ever happen to you is for you to be completely and utterly content on this earth. Listen, one of the greatest things that I believe is happening to the church right now is that the world around us, the world that we know of, is sort of unraveling. I think that's a good thing for the church. All the things that are happening right now and the frustration that we have of, losing the ability to even gather on Sunday or being quarantined or even wearing a mask and all the things that we get worked up over it's just showing us what we really find our hope in that we would even get worked over that if you would wear a mask or not wear a mask it's making a political statement right it almost feels that way or that we would we would get worked up that that we would find joy in in watching our particular political opponent be humiliated in a debate that we would find joy in that 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 would show us that perhaps our idea of hope is skewed to say the least or at least we could agree that it's not healthy right and the fact that our emotions and our anger would be so charged in situations like this just proves that we are not in a posture where we're really crying out to the Lord and we're really looking to Him for our hope. But rather, we are putting hope in the world around us to change to the point where we might feel content. Man, we never feel content in this world. Friends, COVID-19, the tensions... That we see of race in our country, an intense election year that we see coming before us, I believe can actually be a blessing to us as a church. Because what it does is it forces us out of contentment and brings us before the throne of God. And we say, God, we need you. We trust you. Uh, we believe you are the one to rescue your people. We believe you're the one who can actually redeem all of this. That's hope. That's hope in something that is secure. Hope is birthed out of discontentment. And my hope is that we would be discontent in this world. We're not made to be content in this world. We're made and created to be content in the one who created us, Our God, our Lord, our Father, our Master, the one who truly loves us, the one who truly gives us hope. He's certain. And this is where David ends up. If you look at verses 22 through 31, I'll just read it. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise him. You who fear the Lord, Praise him, all the offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Then you go down to verse 27. He says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. In these verses... David transitions from despair to complete hope in the Lord. David sees how the Lord will answer his prayer, that his prayer will be that he will be vindicated, that he will again join with God's people in worship. And not only that, but David looks forward to where all the offspring of Israel, all the offspring of Jacob, would worship the Lord. And not only that, but it would be extended to all nations would worship the Lord. David here recognizes who the true king is. That this is a plan that is far greater than him. How does David know this? Well, first of all, he read the Bible. He knew what the Bible said about who God is. And he knew that there would be a king from his lineage that would come and bring this all to fruition. And even as he's writing this psalm, this would be a prophetic word to tell of who this king is, of this Messiah who would come and redeem a people to call his own. As David's writing this, he probably was not aware of all that he was saying. But I want you to see the parallels of this psalm and the story of Jesus in Matthew 27 when Jesus is on the cross. Matthew 27, we'll have a chart up where you can see the parallels. Matthew 27, verse 35, said when they crucified him, Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Look at Psalm 22, verse 18. David says they divided my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. Good, I'm just the first few, few verses in uh, Matthew 27, verse 39. It says, All those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. What did David say in the Psalm? Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Look at Matthew 27, verse 43. He who trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Look at Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew 27, verse 46. What is the final words that Jesus says? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does this psalm begin? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You see, David had hope that there would be a Redeemer to come that would make all wrongs right, that God would come and bring justice and healing to the world. David didn't know that his very cries in this psalm would be echoed by this king on the cross. In fact, the cross time that, G- that David was writing this, the cross wasn't even invented yet as a torture device. David's own cries would be the cries of the Lord Jesus as he's there atoning for our sin, for David's sin, so that we would be the very picture that David looked for, the picture of worshipers that came from the offspring of Jacob, that were extended to families of all nations, that we would belong in this story. This is what Jesus Christ went through for us. When we feel shame, when we feel humiliation, when we feel mocked, when we feel abandoned by God, when we feel abandoned by others, we must remember Jesus. Jesus died so that we would not be abandoned by the Lord. And the good news is. Jesus wasn't abandoned by the Father. When he went to the cross and he absorbed God's wrath because he absorbed our sin, our sin past, our sin present, and our sin future was placed on the Lord Jesus. And the Father at that moment could not look upon his son because he took on the ugliness, the shame of our sin. And so the Father at that point did forsaken the son, but we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is three days later, the son resurrected from the grave, and he conquered the penalty that we deserve, the penalty of death, which means no matter how anxious, afraid, angered, resentful, sorrowful, hurt, or guilty we feel, if we are in Christ, friends, we know that there is a resurrection that is coming for us. If Christ has risen, we too will rise. And that, my friends, is where we have hope. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's suffering, even in the midst, had hope. Paul still felt pain. Paul still felt emotions. Yet he knew that it was momentary. He knew he wouldn't feel this way or experience this pain forever, that there would be a resurrection. He knew of what David spoke of. The offspring of Israel, the people from every nation, gathered worshiping the Lord together. Friends, that's what our our hope is in. That's what we look forward to. Everything we feel here on earth is momentary. For the believer, this earth is not our heaven. It's the closest thing for the believer. This earth is the closest thing that we'll experience when it comes to hell. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for this earth. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't take in the beauty and respect all that God has done. It doesn't mean that we don't steward it well. Absolutely, we must steward this earth well as God has gifted it to us. It doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. We definitely have our work cut out for us as we strive to pray and share the gospel and read the word and make disciples and be diligent to be faithful believers in Jesus Christ, to be the church, that we would fight even against injustice, that we would do that here on earth. But we also know that our future hope is not here. It is with Christ. Our future hope is not in politics. Our future hope is not in America. Our future hope is not in therapy. It's not in marriage. It's not in our families. It's not in our children. Our future hope is not in Integrity Church. Our future hope is Christ and Christ alone. Our future hope, if it's anything else, will only leave us in Psalm 22, verse 1, where we feel forsaken and we feel abandoned. We must have hope in what the Lord is going to do. We must believe with certainty that our hope lies with Him, that we look forward to a better day. And so here's my invitation for you. I invite you to to look at your your emotions right now. And what are your emotions teaching you about where you're finding hope? Maybe you're finding your emotions being wrapped up in the political state of our country, or maybe it's just in the future of viruses and diseases or whatever it is in our country, the uncertainty of life. Uh, maybe it's just in other people. Maybe you're hoping other people would bail you out. Maybe it's just in money, or maybe it's in your spouse, or maybe it's in your kids. But your emotions right now can teach you where you're finding your hope. And so it doesn't mean that we don't We don't have sadness about injustice or we don't have anxiety about uh, things that are happening with COVID. It doesn't mean that we push those down. But we cannot stay in those places forever. That our emotions show us where we're finding hope, but it also brings us to a point where we are like David, where we're crying out to the Lord and we say, you know what, even in the midst of this despair, even in the midst of this pain, even when I don't feel like you're listening, God, even when I feel like other people and I'm not seeing well by other people or I'm not loved by other people, I still know somehow, Lord, you are going to work this out in the end and you are going to come through for me. And I know that because that's what you did for your son who went before me, who died in my place, who was not forsaken, who was resurrected three days later. And Lord, because I believe that, I know there'll be a resurrection for me because you love me, because you chose me and you sent your son to die for me. So friends, would you have hope in the gospel? And would your emotions teach you something today? Teach you where you find hope? My hope is that it will be in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory today and we thank you for the hope that we can have in Christ. God, would you teach us, would you teach us about where we find hope? Would you show us our emotions and our despair and how desperately we need you? God, I do pray for those who are listening today and perhaps don't have a relationship with you. I pray that your spirit would draw them into relationship with you. I pray that they would see that you died in their place, that you love them, and you desire for them to be a part of this wonderful picture that David showed of worshipers all over the world, of male and female, of black and white, of Jew and Gentile that love you. Lord, would you show us that picture and show us how we can belong in that picture and give us hope. Give us hope in the gospel. God, I pray that we would be your church right now more than ever. I pray that we would be faithful and that we would consistently run run to you as our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.